3. Uh, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 3, reading Acts 3, 11, uh, to the end of the chapter, which is verse 26. Follow along then as, as we read the Word of God. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Jesus saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name by faith in his name has made this man strong and whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that in every soul that who does not listen to him, that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Or excuse me, yet, who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God, we just ask that you would speak to us from your word. We believe your word is living and active, and so we ask that it would be such in our midst. Give me uh, the words to say today. May it come straight from the pages of Scripture, because that is where the power and authority lies Uh, And we just praise you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen. I want you to think for a moment uh, about the best ice cream sundae uh, that you have ever had. Uh, And maybe some of you can remember the exact uh, place you were uh, when you had that ice cream sundae. Some of you I know know of some places in York County where you can get farm fresh uh, ice cream. None of that store-bought stuff that made straight from the farm and it, it uh, pardon the phrase, but it melts in your mouth quite, quite literally. And when you have that ice cream, I know some of you have, have told us about that ice cream and, and said, this is where the ice cream really is. You, you have to go here. You, you have to taste this uh, and experience it. 
Some of you are, are like that when it comes to, to restaurants where you have a, a really good steak. And you come back and you say to your friends, your neighbors, or sometimes here at church, you, you really have to try this restaurant. The, the steak was delicious. Or when you go there, make sure you get this particular item on the menu. And you're, you're not afraid to talk about it. And you're not ashamed a, a to, to be an advertisement for that restaurant or that ice cream sundae because you, you've experienced and you, you want your friends to experience. And you say, this is really good. You have to try it. Uh, evangelism is just like that. That you've experienced the Lord Jesus Christ, that you, you know how wonderful He is. It is a joy to worship Him, to talk about Him, to know His death and resurrection. And, and evangelism should be because we know who Jesus is and we want other people to experience Him. We are called to be a people who repent. And our main point this morning is, is we are called to repent. But I want you to think about it this way this morning, that repentant people call other people to repent. Those of us who have experienced Jesus Christ call other people to repent. We know that we are sinners and we needed to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that involved repenting of our sins. And so when we share the gospel with other people and we are calling them to repent, we are not saying uh, we are better than you. We are not saying that we have it all together. Uh, we are coming with what the Word of God tells us. That's where the authority lies in evangelism. But we are also coming to people as those who have experienced Jesus. And we know the joy of having our sins washed away. Repentant people call others to repent. So, I want you to think about this passage. We are called to repent, but I want you to think in, in terms of two levels, if you will, of application. The, the first challenge through this passage as we work through it is, have I repented of my sins? Do I know the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as my Lord and Savior? And we should never be afraid to ask that even inside the church. Because there are sometimes people who come in and go through the motions. But, but ask yourself, am I ashamed to repent? Or, or do I rejoice in the benefits of repenting? That even as a Christian, when I sin, I shouldn't be ashamed of coming to the Lord again and saying, you know, I, I, I'm sorry for my sins. I, I really blew it this time. And there is a joy in, in living in that fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The second aspect is, so one is how it affects me. The second is, how does it affect my evangelism? Evangelism explains who Jesus is and calls people to respond by calling them to repent and turn. Evangelism is telling people about Jesus. It means proclaiming the gospel, but part of evangelism is calling people, inviting people, even with a measure of authority, telling people, you need to repent. And so again, repentant people, those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, are those who, who should call other people to repent. So think of the sermon this morning on those two levels as we work through the text and make applications. First, we are called to repent because Christ died and rose again from the dead. Peter gets right down to the basics of the gospel. And you remember last week we looked at the, the healing that Jesus does. They are walking into the temple. There is this man there begging for, for money. And Peter says, I don't have silver and gold 
but let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And he says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Uh, And we assume, because he says this faith in Jesus healed the man, that Peter said more than is recorded in the book of Acts. He said something to the effect of, of needing to believe in Jesus or told the man a little bit about the gospel at the very least. And now this crowd is gathering. And Peter uses it as an opportunity to share the gospel. And sometimes we have those opportunities in our life. Something happens in our life, something maybe miraculous, sometimes even a tragedy that we are going through. And people begin to gather around us and want to know how we're doing or want to know why this happened to us. And we have the opportunity to say, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ and how it is that I'm able to cope through this tragedy or how it is that my prayers were answered as I prayed for something. So we are called to repent because Christ died and rose again from the dead. Notice here that that it is the God of the covenant that Peter focuses on. The God of the covenant glorified Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Uh, Now notice how, how Peter uses these descriptors uh, this this name of God that would have connected with the people. They knew God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They were familiar with those Old Testament promises and, and covenants that God made, keeping His Word down through the ages. In fact, when, when Moses in the Old Testament sees God at the burning bush, God gives him his name. He says, I am the I am who I am. But when Moses first sees God, God says uh, to him, then surely I have seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cries and their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And he says that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And even when Moses is to go into Israel and, and, and begin to bring the people out from Egypt and he's supposed to give them that name, the I am, Moses is told, tell them, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The same God that is at work in the Old Testament is the same God who sends God the Son, Jesus, to die on the cross. The same way that God is working through the Old Testament to redeem His people, all of this now comes to the the final redemption, the ultimate forgiveness of sins coming in Jesus Christ because God was the God who made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to his descendants, and He keeps all of those promises. Uh, When we were at the rescue mission a few weeks ago, I was talking with a guy and he said, and and I I was thinking about this this week, and I'm like, wow, you really don't hear that. It's always a, a caricature. But I actually heard him say to me, the God of the Old Testament is hateful and wrathful and the God of the New Testament is kind and loving. And and the more I thought about that this week, and this had happened several weeks ago, I thought, wow, I've heard of people who've said that, but now I heard someone who said it. And I just was thinking... That is so not the Bible. First off, in the New Testament, we see God just as much judging sin as in the Old Testament. But but even more, in the Old Testament, God is gracious and God is patient and God is loving. and, And all these times His people sin and He extends mercy and grace and He promises that the Messiah will come. 
Isaiah 52:13. I think Peter is alluding to this here in his passage. It's right. It's the verses right before Isaiah 53, that suffering servant song, where Jesus dies on the cross in prophecy. There, but Isaiah 52:13 says, "Behold, my servant acted wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted." Or we could translate it, "He shall be glorified." And and Peter is saying here. God has done this as He promised. He glorified His servant. This one who came to earth, born of the virgin, died on the cross. God has raised Him up and glorified Him. The Old Testament foretold of these sufferings of Jesus. Look at verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. You can think there of Isaiah 53 uh, being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Uh, By His stripes we are healed, that He is crucified for us. You can think of of Psalm 22 and all of those things that Jesus cries out on on the cross are are the literal fulfillments, word for word, of what Psalm 22 said. You can think of other passages that that prophesy about the suffering uh, death of the one to come or even just the idea of needing a atoning sacrifice, needing my sins to be paid for is prophesied about in the Old Testament. But guess what? God keeps his word. God keeps His Word and He does these things. We need to remember that in in our day and age. We need to remind ourselves in our struggles, in our trials, even in our witnessing to other people, God keeps His Word. When we are inviting someone to repent, when we are inviting them to return to Jesus, we are telling them that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins and God kept His Word. And the Word of God says that if you do not repent, if you do not return to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins, you will be cut off. There will be condemnation. And God keeps His Word. This is because God is the God who is in control of all things. Isaiah 46, verse 10 says that God is one who, quote, is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. When we are evangelizing, we are, we are telling people what God has done. We are telling them about God. And we are telling them how wonderful He is that He makes these unbreakable covenant promises. And, and you think about it. How many times in the Old Testament did Israel sin? <laughs> a lot. How many times do we sin in our lives? Uh, a lot. But how many times does the Lord forgive their sins? How many times does, yes, the Lord brings phases of judgment and disciplines them because He loves them and, and sends them even into exile in Babylon, but, but even in Isaiah, promises to bring them out and promises the suffering servant who will be the ultimate forgiveness of sins. If God was going to rely on us or be dependent upon us to fulfill His word, 
If, if salvation was dependent upon me and how I respond to God as if I am good enough to, to achieve or, or merit what He's going to do, none of us would ever be saved. We talk about salvation. It's, it's by God's grace alone that Israel over and over again cheated on God, broke the covenant, worshipped other idols, went into sin, and God did punish them at times, but He said, you know what? The strength of the covenant, the strength of these promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, later on to King David, they depend upon Me and My character and My goodness. And our salvation depends upon God and His character and His promises and His goodness. And when we are telling people the Gospel, we are telling them about the goodness of God. Just like we tell someone about how wonderful uh, a Sunday is, uh, ice cream Sunday, or a, or a steak, and we are saying, try this. We are, we are telling people, this is how wonderful God is. And turn to Him and find His goodness. Because He is like no other. And we've sinned. And we've betrayed Him. And we, each of us in our own way, has gone astray and lived in rebellion to Him. But He offers that if we turn to Him, He will blot out our sins and forgive us. Peter's audience, of course, had crucified Jesus Christ, even though He was innocent. You can read about this, verse 13, 14, 15. At the end of verse 13, "...whom you delivered over in the presence of Pilate, and when he, decide, when he had decided to release him, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." Verse 17, "...and now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers." Pilate in judging Jesus, gets to a point, and, and Luke 23 actually quotes him as saying, I find no guilt in this man. It goes on in Luke 23, verse 14, You brought this man to me who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any charges. Uh, verse 15, Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus in Luke 23:21, And they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. First Peter chapter 2:22 tells us that Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found on his lips. He was innocent. And, and not just innocent of the crimes they were trying to get him for, but he was completely holy, completely righteous. Whereas each one of us has in our sins fallen astray, walked away from God, fallen short of the glory of God, as Scripture said, Jesus Christ had never done any of these things. And so he's God the Son who comes to earth in his humanity but He lives a perfect human life. And they kill Him. And He goes to the cross because of our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's interesting, the phrase, uh, the statement, the righteous one in Acts, I think is an allusion to Isaiah 53. Listen to Isaiah 53:11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he, God, shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, uh, made many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ, the righteous one in Isaiah 53 and in Peter here, bears our sin. And God sees it and is satisfied. And, and there is in this passage a prophecy of the resurrection. That, that He will divide Him a portion with many and shall divide the spoil with the strong. Jesus Christ saves a people who turn and trust Him. Because He Himself is raised up. We too will be raised up one day if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just give you two applications to this first point. First, very clearly, believe Jesus died and rose again. Believe it. We sang this morning the song, uh, The Creed, and we were saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. And such a wonderful thing it is to to gather here today and, and we're confessing something together. We all came from different places today. We all came from different lives and backgrounds. And some of us drove further than others to be here today. But we all have one thing in common, whether we're old or young. And that's we believe, or if we hold these things in our heart, we have one thing in common. We believe in Jesus Christ. And it is a good thing to gather with the church and say these things to remind ourselves. Some of us maybe had a terrible week. And we need that refreshing. We need to remind ourselves in all of life what really matters. The most important thing is that Jesus Christ died and rose again. Don't take it for granted and continue to hold fast to it. Ask yourself this morning, dear Christian, does your heart long to remind yourself of these words? Jesus Christ died and He rose again from the dead. And it was my sin that put Him there on the cross. I was guilty and deserved the wrath of God. And Christ stepped forward and took my place. Second, the evangelism side of it. Evangelism or sharing the Gospel must, it must tell people why Jesus died and that He rose from the dead conquering death. You are not sharing the gospel. You are not evangelizing if you don't share that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. Evangelism is not just inviting someone to church, although please do invite people to church. We want people to come to church. But but evangelizing them is not just saying we have a really good fellowship meal. We are really friendly people. Evangelism isn't even just telling people that God exists, although in our culture we need to even do that now. 
Evangelism is telling people Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. Evangelism, I'll go so far as even to say evangelism is insufficient if we are just telling people what God did in our life. Now, there's nothing wrong with telling people what God did in our life. He has saved us. He has forgiven us. We we believe in fellowship with God. But think of it this way. Where is the power and authority? A Buddhist will come to you and tell you what Buddha did in his life. A Muslim will come to you and tell you what Allah did in his life or her life. We aren't just coming and telling people what God did to us in our life, although we should include that. We are telling people what God did on the cross in his son. What we are telling people is tied to events that really happened, not just how we feel in our hearts about it, although hopefully we do feel great joy that he's done these things. We're tying it to what happened, and that is what evangelism is. Even more, evangelism needs to to point out in a loving and gracious way that we actually need forgiveness of our sins. The the old concept was in evangelism, the way older theologians and pastors said, said it, is we need to give people the law. Meaning we need to point out to people we are sinners. And this is why Jesus came to die. We can promise them forgiveness of sins if they turn. But we have no good news to share them with them if they don't also understand the gravity of the bad news. So take this back to yourself for a second. Do you see your need of a Savior? Do you see even in your Christian life the ongoing need to repent? The ongoing need of a, a relationship with Jesus? That we continue to trust Him for our salvation? Growing in the faith means that we have more of the Holy Spirit in us. And when more of the Holy Spirit is working in us, we are going to have a greater sensitivity to sin. And when we have a greater sensitivity to sin, there should be a, a greater turning to Jesus. That even as a Christian, we're not ashamed to repent. You know, one of the reasons that, that unbelievers think that Christians are hypocrites is because sometimes, let's be honest, we are. We need to remind ourselves and remind other people we are just as much being repentant as we are calling other people to repent. Second, this morning, we are called to repent so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins and enjoy a future with God. Uh, To be saved, a person must repent and turn. The blessing of forgiveness is our sins are blotted out. So you have verse 19, repent, therefore, and turn back. Repentance is when you are heading one direction, you are walking away from God and you turn. And you acknowledge sorrow for your sins. You see that what you're doing leads to death. And you say, I don't want that. And it literally means to turn. And you are turning to God. And in that turning, there is a knowledge of sin and a sorrow for sin. That I have messed up. I have walked away from God. And I need this forgiveness. Repent, therefore, that your sins may be blotted out. 
Did you ever uh, spill something on a book? I have a couple books in my office, and they have some coffee stains on them. You know, you're reading the book, and you're flipping, and you drink the coffee, and it dribbles. Maybe that doesn't happen to you, but it happens to me. And what do you do? Right away, you, you run and you get napkins, and you try to blot it out. Coffee stains do not come out of books. Uh, I know. I had one time, I, I had like probably 10 books spread out and they're all open and I'm using other books to hold certain books open and, and I reached for the cup of coffee and I spilled it just all over the desk. And I, I could probably, give me enough time and I could probably pull the books and show you exactly which books it was that day. And you run like crazy to blot these things out because you don't want your good books ruined. You don't want your wife to see that you spilled coffee on the good books that you spent with your money. But more than that, we need our sins blotted out. When I blotted out those coffee stains, the coffee stains are still there. Praise the Lord when Jesus blots out our sins. They are no longer there. He wipes them away. It is better than the modern day whiteout where we just cover up the mistake that we made on our paper. The, the idea of blotting it out in the ancient world, paper was at a premium. And so you would often reuse parchments or pieces of paper. And, and you would take the old ink and, you know, paper was much tougher so you could, you could wash it a little bit and scrub it. And you would literally blot out that, that old stuff that was written there. And, and we discover documents all the time in archaeology and stuff. Of uh, They can now scan these documents using electronic things, and they can actually see what was behind what had been written on the paper because there are still little bits of that stuff that had been blotted out there. It's just a fascinating science. But when God blots out sin, there is nothing there to see anymore. There is no looking at ourselves through an electron microscope and seeing, oh yeah, my sins really are there. No, God has completely forgiven them. And this is good news that we need to tell people. But you only get this forgiveness if you turn to Jesus Christ and repent. Psalm 51, that psalm that, that David prays after he sinned with Bathsheba, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 51.9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Isaiah 43.25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's interesting here that in the forgiveness of sins, God is the one who gets the most glory. The scripture passage isn't denying that it's for us or for our salvation, but when he says, I blot out your transgressions for my sake, it is saying how wonderful God is, how good and great God is. And we praise him for this. The hope of restoration then awaits all those who turn to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20 and 21. So there, there are two things here that Peter focuses on. First, he says, you need to turn and repent so that your sins can be blotted out. But then what's going to happen? Look at verse 20 and 21. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus 
whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So we have forgiveness now. But guess what? More exciting things await us. That Jesus Christ is in heaven right now, and it says that he must reign in heaven until he puts all things under his feet. And he will one day return, and he will restore his creation, and, and first he will reign for a period of a, of a thousand years, and there will be prosperity, and it will be wonderful, and people won't be hungry, and, and this is... I wrote like two pages of Bible verses that I can start quoting for you here. It's in Ezekiel 34. It's in Ezekiel 36. This land was desolate, has become like a garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. And I have rebuilt and ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. You, you get this picture of all of the prosperity that you had in the Garden of Eden, where people were walking with God, when Jesus Christ returns, remember how Adam was supposed to take care of the garden and subdue the creation and tend to it? Jesus will do that on the earth. And it will be wonderful. And people will stream to God to know Him. The second phase, if I can use that language, of this time of refreshing will be in the end. The end hope that we have is the new heavens and the new earth. God recreates it all. No more sin. No more death. God himself, his presence comes down and, and it is like a great wedding ceremony. And we're the church. We, we are this beautiful bride that God has made us clean. It is a time of great refreshing and renewal. Have you ever noticed how people love to talk about weddings? Whenever someone goes to a wedding and, and comes back, I, I've never heard someone say, oh, that wedding was terrible. Oh, that bride, she was so ugly. No one even, no one, you know, people maybe complain about the bridesmaid's dresses, but, but nobody ever complains about the bride's dress. Uh, I guess if it's bad, they just don't say anything. But, but people love to reflect about weddings. They're beautiful. They are wonderful. Uh, even as a, as a guy who's not very emotional, I get a little teary-eyed at weddings. It reminds me of my own wedding. It reminds me of seeing my wife, beautiful, coming down the aisle. I tell you, that joy and wonder that we experience pales in comparison to the joy and wonder we will experience when Jesus Christ marries his bride, when the real time of refreshing comes. And in our evangelism, we need to get that across to people. Peter goes on, and we'll just kind of move a little quickly here. Peter goes on, and he does warn that if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be condemned. Look at verse 22 and 23. Moses said, 
the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Verse 23. And he shall, it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. It's condemnation. There is an eternal consequence to rejecting Jesus Christ. And, and in our evangelism, we don't need to be rude. We don't need to, to beat people over the head. We certainly don't want to come off as, well, I'm better than you because I'm saved. We are saved by the same grace of God that we are trying to bring to other people. But we do need to tell them of the consequences. There is eternal suffering, separation from God, and condemnation in hell if you do not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. It is deadly serious. And the question is, do you want to go to the wedding or do you want to go to the place of condemnation, hell? It's horrid. We don't like to talk about it, but it's a penalty that is good and true and righteous for our open rebellion against God. You see, that's how great God is. That is exactly what we deserve. And God so loves the world that He sends His one and only Son to die and rise again. And in evangelism, we are telling that to people. And Peter goes the extra step and and because these people knew the Word of God and he reminds them that all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him proclaimed these days, the days of the death and resurrection and I think also the days of of the future refreshing. Then there's this wonderful promise connecting it back to the covenant of God. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant of God that made, to, made with your father, saying to Abraham, in your offspring all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's from Genesis 12.1. In you all nations shall be blessed. How does God fulfill that? He sends Jesus so that everyone who turns to Jesus might be blessed. Jesus is a descendant humanly of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of King David. All of those promises. You see, God keeps His Word. One of the things I think in evangelism we need to remind people is that God keeps His Word. I want to give you um, five things this morning. Five points of, of application. First, I've been saying this already, we are called to repent and we are to be calling other people to repent. Repentant people call others to repent. In order to evangelize, your heart needs to be right with God. You need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But you're also telling people to take the medicine that you've already taken. That we believe in Jesus Christ. That we are sinners. That we deserve this condemnation. That we were under the condemnation. We are inviting people to move from death to life just as they did. We should be humble when we evangelize. But we shouldn't be afraid to call people with the authority of Scripture just as Peter does. So that's the second application. Appeal to Scripture in evangelism. 
Look at how many times in this passage Peter either A, quotes directly from Scripture, or B, has an allusion to Scripture, calling Jesus the righteous one and other things as well. When you share the Gospel, the weapon that you have is the sword of the Spirit. It's not the creative words that you have. It's not the slick personality. It's not because you're cool. It's, you know, some of us are, are just terrible at talking to people because we just don't know what to say. We get all tongue-tied. And I'm not saying that to put anybody down. I've had those moments where I'm like, blah, 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 I don't know what to tell you. But it doesn't rely on you. You don't change people's hearts. The Scriptures do. Because the Holy Spirit promises to use the Scriptures. When you evangelize, use the Scriptures. If you don't know what to say to someone in evangelism, just memorize at least one Bible verse. Pick John 3.16, or pick Romans 10.9 and 10, or pick, pick 1 John 1.9. Just one verse that if you can get nothing else out, you can bring that verse. Second, a third, the resurrection. The resurrection. What, what has amazed me as I've been studying this passage, and you look at all of the preaching in the book of Acts, how much time they spend talking about the resurrection. When was the last time you heard someone in their evangelism talk about the resurrection? We always talk about the cross of Christ. Rightly so. Don't minimize that for a second. But this great hope is not that He just died, but He conquered death. He not just paid for sins, but we know He paid for it. We know it's done because He rose again. And we call people to repent because God raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His own right hand. The resurrection needs to come across in our evangelism. Let me also encourage you to consider one of the motives for evangelism is beauty. The beauty of who Jesus is. The beauty of the Gospel. When I was in Bible college, I can't tell you the number of times people would try to motivate us to be evangelistic by giving us a guilt trip. Now, sometimes we did need a kick in the pants to say, we've got to go talk to the go- tell the people about the gospel. Sometimes it was appropriate. But sometimes, it just turn those screws. And you do it not because you love Jesus, but you do it because, oh man, I'm going to get a bad grade, or I'm going to feel guilty here if I don't do it. And, and we miss out that there is this love that Peter has for Jesus and the apostles have for Jesus, that they just, they cannot stop talking about it. Peter talks about the restoration. Peter is not just, if you'll pardon the phrase, um, giving people fire insurance. He's not just selling them a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's giving them this wonderful hope that awaits, that this is beautiful that this is wondrous, that this will be God fulfilling all of His plans. And, and don't you want to be a part of this? That we allow the Spirit to stir in people not only the, the guilt of, of a conscience that now understands what sin is, but, but a sense that they are missing out on this beauty of who God is. 
I'd encourage you, as you talk to people, talk about the wonders of Jesus. And part of that wonder is how bad our sins are. We we fail to understand, I think, sometimes the depths of our sin. And and the greater depth that we see it to have, according to Scripture, the, the greater Jesus looks in light of that. That's amazing. The final challenge that I want to leave you with is pray for an opportunity, even this week, pray for an opportunity to to share the gospel. And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you just to write this down. It's a little prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you really are a wonderful, merciful Savior, please give me an opportunity this week to share the good news with somebody. Jesus, I really believe you are a wonderful, merciful Savior. Give me an opportunity this week and in the coming weeks to share that good news. You will be surprised how God will answer that prayer. But God does answer prayers when we pray for the lost. Let's close in a word of prayer ourselves this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come into your presence today and want to delight ourselves in you. We marvel. We are astounded by your beauty. This great wedding ceremony that that awaits us that we can't even begin to to wrap our minds around. That the dwelling place of God is with man. And, And that great covenant marriage vow that you are our God and we are your people. And you wipe away every tear, every pain, every sorrow, every trial. Death is no more. Just how wonderful that is. And we believe that as we trust in you, we will experience that. Give us courage, Lord. Give me courage, even as a pastor, to to be evangelistic, to to talk to other people, to, to, to bring it up in those conversations. Oh, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our midst. In your name we pray. Amen.